This is not the media. This is hell. Putting people before profits, which turns out to be a horrible business model since 1996, this is Hell Your Daily, completely listener-supported source of agita. If you want to support This Is Hell, all you have to do is go to thisishell.com and click on support to find a myriad of ways in which you can help us out here at This Is Hell. I'm your bitter, blind, broke, gap-tooth radio show, podcast, live stream host, Chuck Mertz. Producing this week's show is Alex Jerry. How's your week going so far, Alex? Uh, I hurt my back. Did you? Looking at a bird. <laughs> Things not going very well over here. What kind of bird? I th- well, I thought it was a bohemian waxwing, which would have been worth it. Uh, but it seemed like it was just a common sparrow. Common sparrow. Damn sparrows. We have uh, robins nesting at our house right now, and it's pretty fantastic. Uh, it's a little bit messy on the back porch, but I don't care. Whatever. I love robins. They got eggs yet? Yep. Oh. Got chicks already. Been watching them uh, feed. I have a little monocle out there so I can see them underneath the roof to the back stairway. So a monocle? Yeah, I have like a, you know, like a telescope kind of thing. Oh, I just pictured you with a monocle no, for no, a no, second. No. <laughs> Damn, Chuck, what are you doing all this Patreon money? <laughs> well, I'm doing that, and I'm printing dollar signs on white cloth bags. That's all I do all day long. Today, pork is everywhere. Its gelatin is on the pages of every book, including the book we are featuring on today's show. It's in the photographs that are still hanging on the art gallery walls outside the studio. As they will hang there from a show that never had a closing due to the virus. Hog gelatin is in even the computer processor I used to type up this script. You cannot get away from the industrialized hog whose every part is used for profit or to sustain the profit-making properties of the pig or to make it more profitable for investor and farmer alike. Nothing is wasted. But when nothing is wasted, when industry figures out a way to make money off of every part of the pig, the hog is suddenly in more demand, and not only for food anymore, but for a variety of non-food reasons. So the producer is now going to want to produce as many hogs as possible, as fast as possible, increasing their size of their operation as quickly as they can. Using every part of the hog makes every part of every hog more valuable. In an attempt to avoid waste, a whole industry of massive hog production was created, as was the massive amounts of actual physical waste. Such facilities produce, including a stench that so many desperate communities now know as the fallout from trying to save their struggling Rust Belt towns from becoming ghost towns. In another attempt to come up with perfect hogs for all of its uses, the industry is even standardizing the pig, a species that once had many varieties, is now being boiled down to one. We'll find out all about lives lived within these hog-controlled communities in a few when we talk to award-winning anthropologist Alex Blanchett. He is author of Porkopolis, American Animality, Standardized Life, and the Factory Farm. Alex is assistant professor of anthropology at environmental studies and environmental studies at Tufts University and is co-editor of How Nature Works, Rethinking Labor on a Troubled Planet. Like I said, producing this week's show is Alex Jerry. Alex, what's this week's question from hell? This week's question from hell is, what VP pick is getting you you 100% on this Biden train wreck? What VP pick is getting you 100% on this Biden train wreck? Is getting you 100% on 
Miss Biden train wreck. I like that. That's very good. And if anybody answers Stacey Abrams, I'll be very, very disappointed in all of you. The person with our favorite answer to this week's question from hell again, what VP pick is getting you 100% on this Biden train wreck wins 10. This is hell's advertising sticker. So you too can subvert outdoor advertising with the words this is hell. You can leave your answer to this week's question from hell at our Facebook page, or you can direct message it to us via Twitter, or you can email it to Alex or myself. You can find all that contact information by going to thisishell.com. We are going to be reading some of your answers following our guest, and we will be announcing a winner after Jeff Dorchin does the moment of truth as we close our show on Thursday. So make sure you have your answers to this week's question from hell by Thursday. Alex will, like I said, Alex will have some of your answers in just a moment. This is not the media. This is hell. Like I said yesterday, I cannot stop thinking about sociologist Aaron Hatton's book, Coerced, Work Under Threat of Punishment, which we featured on the show last week. I mentioned on yesterday's show that the way Aaron discusses our relationship with work has really got me thinking about how we define ourselves in the United States. The idea that those marching on state capitals insisting that states ignore health and safety guidelines so they can go back to work, not because they need the money, but because they need to see themselves as productive citizens. That whole concept fascinates me. But unfortunately, I'm going to have to put that off put that discussion off for another day as I am distracted by breaking news. You may remember a few weeks ago, the breaking news we broke about my and my girlfriend's microwave being broken and how it was now had now become a 20 pound bread box. Even the kitchen timer and clock didn't work. The whole thing is dead and will soon be in the trash. That was our first piece of breaking news. Last week, we had more breaking news at our home. The furnace went out. Worse, it went out on during a day where the temperatures outside were unseasonably warm and did not turn off until our thermostat said the building was a balmy 84 degrees. We didn't notice because we were enjoying the fresh air with all of our windows open, but a downstairs neighbor called to complain about the heat. There's a short in the wiring for the thermostat, so it's no longer controlling the furnace. The only way to turn it off is by throwing a master switch in the basement, which means I have to descend and then climb back up three flights of stairs whenever we want heat. We figured we could blow off addressing the problem as spring is here and the weather would be getting a lot warmer. Then, sure enough, we had an unseasonable seasonable cold snap with temperatures falling below freezing. And with a senior citizen on the first floor, we had to get the heat back on, which meant going up and down and up and down three flights of stairs. But there's more breaking news besides for our microwave being broken and now the furnace being busted. We've had another loss in our family of appliances. The oven has now expired. It's not a gas issue. The stovetop works, but the oven itself does not. Without a microwave, without an oven, our, all we are left to cook with is the stovetop or use one of the gifts we got that we never thought we'd employ during a global pandemic, which include a slow cooker, a pressure cooker, and a toaster oven. 
So yeah, a lot of breaking news in my home and not a lot of fixing news as the microwave is about to be kicked to the curb. We need to have an electrician come out and fix our oven, which is a physical interaction that cannot really guarantee any social distancing. Or we have to buy a new one and have it delivered, which also means someone entering our home. We also need an electrician to run wire three floors from the thermostat to the furnace. Again, someone entering our home, which is as risky for them as it is for us. But all that breaking news, I was distracted from all of it by the truly broken news that was announced here in Chicago yesterday. And that is the flight path of the Blue Angels as they do their flyover around noon today, about an hour after our show, right over this building. The flyover is supposedly to honor frontline healthcare workers who are doing their best at keeping as many of us alive as possible. It's a sign of honor and respect for those who definitely need to be honored and even more so respected during this time of the virus. As per their script, local news anchors will smile when they report the flyover. They'll be filled with glee as they celebrate the military because one thing U.S. news media at every level loves to do is celebrate the military. What else would you expect from a modern-day Sparta? We love war. We can't get enough of it. We are in so many wars right now, people here in the States can't even list them all, and few get any coverage in what we call our free press. For those who are still keeping score at home, the U.S. is currently at war in Libya, Syria, Yemen, Iraq, Afghanistan, Pakistan, and Somalia. And those are only the wars we know about. Seven wars. Seven. There are voters voting in this year's U.S. presidential election who have never known the U.S. to not be at war. Their entire lives have been during wartime. We take the wars for granted to the degree that President Trump didn't view himself as a wartime president until the outbreak of the global pandemic. And when was the last time you saw any coverage of any of those wars on the news? Maybe one story about one war every few weeks? Maybe? It's like the U.S. being at war is no longer newsworthy. Our war-making is not information we need to be informed citizens. When someone posted in a neighborhood group on social media the Blue Angels flight path for today's flyover in Chicago, I figured it would be met with an outpouring of support and USA, USA boosterism. You know, that the Blue Angels would work exactly how they are supposed to work, as a successful piece of propaganda. So citizens will not question the perverse amount of U.S. military spending or the war more, or the far more perverse amounts of wars the uh, U.S. now engages in daily that we ignore at our own risk. You know why we can't figure out why they hate us? Because we're not told about all the hateful things the U.S. does militarily all over the world. But the neighborhood did not re react with flag-waving cheers for the Blue Angels. Instead, the vast majority of people who commented on the post saw the whole thing as a waste of money. Sure, a supporter argued that the money had already been allocated and the pilots do need training. But nobody was having it. Almost to a person, every comment was that this flyover is a waste, a distraction, and an inappropriate and climate change contributing way to show appreciation for healthcare workers who are working to save lives during the virus, President Trump thinks it's perfect and beautiful, those majestic jets flying over or something like that. I have no idea if this is intentional or not, but the flyover path is directly above the new Chinatown neighborhood on Chicago's north side. In fact, the flyover crosses that neighborhood twice. It's one of only two places where it flies over twice. 
Years ago, when I lived in New Chinatown, which was dominated and still is to some extent by war refugees from Vietnam, Cambodia, and Laos, in the mid-1990s, I saw old men and women cower as the military jets flew over in preparation for the city's annual air and water show. I never knew if it was intentional this flyover, if it was the U.S. military trolling Southeast Asians who had fled to the States to avoid being killed in a U.S. war on their home soil, and I still don't know, but man, does the military love to buzz New Chinatown. If President Trump or his supporters want to truly show their support for healthcare workers, there is a better way to do it than having a U.S. military jet flyover, which will definitely trigger PTSD in veterans of U.S. wars as well. If the president and his supporters wanted, want to honor those risking their lives every day to save ours, then the president and his supporters would be siding with healthcare workers who are protesting against those who are marching on state capitals, insisting that the states reopen for business and ignore all health and safety protocols that healthcare workers so desperately want us all to follow. The reason why they so desperately want us to follow all of those safety pro protocols? The fewer of us that are sick, the fewer of us that are going to the hospitals where the healthcare workers work, and the fewer chances they have, the healthcare workers have, of contracting the virus from the public. In other words, that mask isn't only protecting you from getting the virus and you from spreading the virus, but it's also keeping healthcare workers safe. Healthcare workers, we will need to treat us as the majority of us will get the virus. If President Trump and his supporters really wanted to honor healthcare workers, then they wouldn't be ignoring science, the science that is the trade and passion of healthcare workers. They wouldn't be prioritizing profits over people, over patients. But that's not what the flyover is about. It's about being a distraction. So we'll all look up in the sky and look away from our screens that keep track of the ever-mounting death toll from COVID-19. Worse than a distraction, it is the normalization of war. Worse than that is it, it's a desperate attempt by the government, the military, and the Trump administration to remind us all that they are in control. But they're not. The virus is in control. We are not. We are at its mercy, and no military, no matter how large, how powerful, how technologically sophisticated, is going to defeat defeat the virus. This is not a war. It's a slaughter. And this is hell. Coming up, there is... Oh, sorry. Coming up, Porkopolis. How pork has changed America. Alex will have some of your answers to last week's question from hell, which is what vice presidential pick is getting you 100% on this Joe Biden train wreck? What vice presidential pick is getting you 100% on this Joe Biden train wreck? The person with our favorite answer to this week's question from hell wins 10 This Is Hell Subvertising stickers. Another end of the world is possible. This is hell the pork industry has figured out a way to make money to commodify everything about the pig in an effort to not have any waste. But what happens when that suddenly creates a huge supply of all parts porcine? And what happens to the community communities where these facilities are located when this kind of totalized industry comes to town? Here to explain to us award-winning anthropologist Alex Blanchett is author of Porkopolis, American Animality Standardized Life and the Factory Farm. Welcome to This is Hell, Alex. 
Thank you very much. Thanks for having me. So, Alex, just so I want to make sure people understand the ubiquitous nature of the poor, of the pig in our daily lives. Let's say I'm a complete vegan who does not want to have any contact with any meat at all, let alone pork. How difficult would it be to take pork out of my life to make my life kosher, if you will? Um, that would be pretty challenging. Um, you know, the, 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 the pig has been made to surround us in radical ways. Um, whether you order something from a truck that uses diesel that's that has um, biodiesel blended into it, um, whether you drive down a roadway that perhaps has some forms of bone within it, um, or even whether you use the internet um, after companies like Google capture uh, carbon offsets by funding biogas extraction from pig manure lagoons, the pig is being made and remade and saturated through our everyday lives to the point where, you know, I say in the book, um, in some ways, um, our everyday lives uh, have been turned into um, tiny minor subsidies for these operations. So these operations then, are they more about feeding humanity or are they more about using the pork, using the hog for other purposes? Um, I think we can't separate those two things. And I think that's been um, the model all the way going back to um, um, late 19th century Chicago, if not Cincinnati before that. Um, there's, you know, there's many reasons that we have incredibly cheap meat, um, way overproduced meat that range from um, massive economies of scale to deregulation to various forms of industry support and agricultural colleges. But a significant factor, I think, in these models as they operate is to try to continually cheapen the price of meat by finding value in all of the other things in pigs to the point where, you know, there was a time when meat was something of a luxury or something that wasn't very common. Whereas today, I think um, for a lot of people, um, it's kind of hard to avoid eating meat. There's just so much of it. It's so radically cheap. And a significant factor of that is all of the 400 some odd um, non-meat commodities that come from pigs today. We were speaking with uh, some automobile experts on our show back in the early 2000s, and they were saying if gas could get up to $10 a gallon, maybe we could have an impact on uh, lessening their impact, lessening the automobile's impact on climate change. Do we, can we just do the same thing with meat? If meat just suddenly became incredibly expensive, would that address many of the problems that these kinds of facilities cause when it comes to uh, pollution, when it comes to the types of jobs that people get, when it comes to migrant labor? Yeah, um, I, th I think I think the, the, the cheap cost of meat is a significant factor in this and the constant ongoing cheapening of the cost of meat. Um, um, I, I, I do not think it's a negative social goal um, collective goal to think about how we can um, try to um, increase the price of meat. I don't think increasing the price of meat is is a negative outcome. Your book, as you write, is about the politics of industrialism in an ostensibly post-industrial United States articulated through the changing forms of being human that underlie porcine life and death. With so many meat production workers testing positive for COVID-19 now, shouldn't the meat industry be more post-industrial, that is, more automated to less the potential, lessen the potential for human contagion? Yeah, I mean, that's the argument we're seeing emerge right now. Um, 
that, um, you know, voiced from a lot of agricultural economists and so forth, that in the face of this pandemic, the human body has suddenly emerged as a major problem of production, um, and that what needs to happen is increased automation um, and increased kind of investment, um, rather than relying on, um, you know, highly exploited, um, um, racially cheapened labor. Um, but there's a bunch of questions there, right? There's questions as to, you know, it's, it kind of sounds like just um, a flick of the wrist, let's just automate. Well, it's not so easy as that. Um, you know, when I worked in and interviewed um, senior managers at slaughterhouses, many of them were adamant that they could never, they would never be able to find a machine that can cleanly take apart animal muscles, given their various, their, their variations and so forth. Um, and in a broader sense, um, this sort of attention to, to workers as a problem of production at this moment in COVID kind of ignores the ways that the human body, that the system has been operating beyond the limits of the human body for a really long time. And before it um, allegedly or not impacted the meat supply, um, no one seemed to um, critically question it. Um, no one seemed to question the fact as Oxfam and some ethnographers and other journalists um, revealed a few years back that in southern poultry plants, um, workers were wearing diapers on the production line because it was operating at such a speed and for some reason it just couldn't accommodate um, bathroom breaks, right? That the human bladder had become a problem of production. Or if we think of just the rates of injury in, in plants that are operating at such a fast pace that workers are making, you know, upwards of 10,000 repetitive motions or knife, slice, knife slices in an eight or nine or 10 hour shift, um, causing all sorts of injuries um, over time, um, the human body in some senses has long been a problem in the system and it's been largely ignored until um, the, the so-called meat supply was threatened. And you mentioned all these kind of journalistic exposés that come out about a certain facility or a singular plant and how they have these kinds of issues, like you were just explaining with the chicken plant and the workers wearing diapers. But you say that these are, this might be even a mistake by these exposés to see them as unique situations, that this is the normal situation when it comes to food processing. What do we miss when we think that this is unique in only singular facilities and not the way that meat packing is, meat processing is being done everywhere? Yeah. Um, you know, there's, there's a few things here. Yeah, this, this book um, is not an expose, and it actually kind of resists some of the logics of the expose, um, granted, there's there's a wide variety of of writing on 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 the meat industry, um, but by and large, um, a lot of the more popular books um, tend to you know come into a community and show a portrait of moral deviance, right? Of trying to say this is so far outside of the norm, of the moral norm, and this is so exceptional and sort of showing images or, or, or describing images of, of stench-ridden environs, um, of, of uncontained and uncontrolled manure, of workers' repetitive stress injuries, and then moving on, right? And then moving on to give a kind of comparative um, example of a bucolic farm elsewhere and sort of saying, this is who we are. Um, and these the, the places over there are a deviation. Um, you know, I... My book starts from different premises from that. Um, 
few weeks ago, I was listening with your, in, to your interview with um, Josh Speck, the author of Red Meat Republic, and you asked an interesting question. Um, you know, why does so much history, sort of, especially American history, kind of chart a pivotal moment um, of industrialization and capitalism with the rise of Henry Ford's assembly line, when actually Henry Ford purportedly took the the assembly line idea from Chicago's disassembly line, right? What would happen if we instead started thinking about um, the history of industrial capitalism um, moving on from there? And, you know, one of the points my book tries to make is that there's, um, there's nothing new, certainly, about these industrial operations. And in some senses, what they are and what, what, what creates um, the, the, some of the major challenges of industrial meat production is that it's like 160 years of refined industrial engineering bearing down on pigs, um, landscapes, and people. Um, so, you know, I make some, with that in mind, right, with this sense that, you know, yes, these companies are continuously um, kind of trying to reindustrialize an over-industrialized animal, trying to find new ways to work an overworked animal. I also try to think about the ways that um, um, they also inherit a deeper system that they're trying to work through, um, not trying to develop a kind of moral critique, which I think we see a bit too often, that um, the people you know, like low level or mid level, or even some high level managers of these operations are kind of morally deviant, or even in some exposés that that workers don't have an allegedly don't have a, a morally adequate sense or connection to the pig. And instead of trying to develop an expose like in that sense, like if only we show how bad it is, it'll suddenly change. Or if only we show um, um, how poorly um, people have the moral problematics of 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 people's orientations to animal life and environments, then perhaps we can fix it. And I don't want to write an expose like that. I wanted to write, um, first of all, I probably studied, I guess what you could say is one of the better companies, certainly not one of the, not a very, very large company, a company that, you know, monitors the, the birth, conception, birthing, raising, and killing of some 7 million pigs a year. Um, but one that would be considered within the industry to be like the most quote-unquote quality of industrial pork production um, that were themselves trying to work within these very low profit margin pressures that they had a hand in creating, but they, they, they've also inherited um, to try to create a bit more value in these animals and also try to make these situations a bit more livable to have perhaps less punishing or disposable labor, have different ethical relationships to animals. Um, but also I wanted to, not unlike perhaps, I won't compare myself to Upton Sinclair, but um, not unlike Upton Sinclair, who, you know, went to the Chicago meatpacking yards, not to show how um, the armors of the world were um, absolutely morally deviant from America or at large, but instead used the meat packers to shine a different kind of light on industrial capitalism as it's functioning normally. You write that as animals were dismembered with the regularity of clockwork, some believe they were witnessing the roots of an incipient future where nature was harnessed for human prosperity. This is what the people are viewing when they come as tourists to the Chicago Union Stockyards. Harnessing nature for human prosperity. 
Is the deeper question, are you for harnessing nature or for human prosperity or against harnessing nature for human prosperity? How much is our cultural or political divide over our relationship with nature and especially within the people that you met in the town, the fictional town that you call Dixon? How much is there whole life a political and cultural statement that it revolves around pork yeah um you know so i i i take up that 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 notion and try to think of the the town of dixon or all of these other towns that are starting suddenly starting to make the the news in the wake of covid19 um as kind of postmodern porkopolises right Chicago was, um, you know, first Cincinnati was Porkopolis, the place that produced more um, pork than any other in the world. And then it was Chicago, right? And though it's odd to think about today, you know, Chicago was, I think, can be fairly compared to, um, in some circles, kind of like the Silicon Valley of today, right? The place that's supposed to be fomenting a new world that's that offers a way where what people can come and see and kind of sense the future and imminent and potential future. Obviously, we know from Sinclair and others that it was a place of grotesque exploitation of humans and animals, um, but nonetheless um, kind of operated as a dream image as well in these large tours and public displays of a highly um, standardized, routinized, and incredibly productive system that promised abundance. Um, whereby, um, yes, yeah, humanity could dominate and control um, non-human nature to its own ends. Um, I think of these contemporary um, sites of pork production as pork, postmodern porkopolises, if you will. Um, places that we kind of, we oftentimes hear see written about as anthropocentric projects, right? That this is about humanity dominating um, non-human animals, that this is about all about human desire and greed or, or, or appetites and so forth, and um, that we sometimes look at these operations or see media images of, you know, pigs locked in confinement, um, you know, 1,200 barns holding three, four million pigs in confinement cordoned off in the world like a kind of clean, biosecure, um, techno-scientific um, project of domination. And working and living in this place just gave me a different orientation as to what the factory farm is. It's not um, anthropocentric. It's not porcine-centric. I guess you could say it's capitalocentric, um, building off of, of Jason Moore's critique of the Anthropocene. Um, but, you know, at the core of the book, you know, as I say, one, as, as, you, as you discussed before, um, I say one of the core of this book is really what it means to be human and especially in a human worker in a company town that's built through and for the mass production of pigs. Um, a place that I'll add is not only about making billions of pounds of flesh in a year, but also one that's trying to develop a standardized, replicable, modular model of, of the mass production of animal life and death or animality. And really what I, what, Cost my across like 27 months of ethnographic research, what I was always just struck about was um, how the struggles of trying to reindustrialize an over-industrialized animal or trying to find new forms of value, new money, as company managers like to say, in an animal that's already been subjected to like 160 years 
of fallout. And one of the uh, um, things that just became obvious over time was just how little room for growth and expansion was left in this animal that already contains within itself some 1,100 different product codes. Um, it's already produced in just a massive scale within a 100-mile radius region. Um, it's already killed at a rate of 20,000 pigs a day or a pig every three seconds. Um, and over time, I just came to see the degree to which actually, in some senses, the object of agribusiness engineering was shifting, um, that it was not just about trying to find new money in the animal, but of trying to remake um, sometimes extreme and sometimes subtle forms of human behavior, culture, living arrangements, and so forth to make them more capable of accommodating um, very uniform, standardized animals at the scale of millions. Is You mentioned how you go and try to meet with an anti-agribusiness activist, and you get to the person's door, and there's a blue plastic bag that's hanging on the doorknob. A $5 bill and a yellow note was stapled to its front. The note apologized for wasting my time. The money was for my gas. The note's author claimed the corporation the pork processing corporation had become too powerful over the years and could refuse to buy their crops. The former activists had decided they did not want to further risk their family's livelihood by becoming part of a new media scandals. Inside the blue plastic bag were some weathered anti-factory farm booklets distributed by the Sierra Club in the 1990s. The note explained that these booklets had once been helpful as this person tried to learn what their home was becoming. Their pages, dog-eared corners, index decades-old struggles that now felt buried, subdued to waning memories and hushed voices in diners among close friends. Is this kind of power over a population unique when it comes to Dixon's pork industry? Or is this typical? Can the pork industry only exist in towns that it dominate, dominates to this degree? Yeah, that's a, that's a good question. Um, so let me, let me back up a bit on that and, and, and talking about that scene. You know, when I was preparing this project in the in the mid two thousands, I was reading reports from the nineteen nineties and even into the the two thousands of the degree of strife that emerged from um, from in rural communities when pork corporations or chicken corporations um, first started moving in. Um, you know, there's it's been described as the nineteen nineties hog wars, this kind of period of agrarian rediscovery as pork corporations start setting up um, barns that each hold a thousand pigs um, or even up to 10,000 pigs on a given site, um, whereby they start, um, you know, whereby neighbors are forced to confront um, overwhelming stench, um, that their quality of life is being hampered. And it's oftentimes narrated and was narrated as a period of agrarian rediscovery and, um, you know, kind of important and, 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 even heroic tales of um, some rural communities um, working, becoming creative activists to try to resist these operations. Um, that's kind of what I expected to find when I arrived in that community, right? This was, it's certainly not the only one to to follow this kind of pattern, to be greeted with a great deal of, of, of neighborly strife and, and struggle. But, but, you know, this, this particular area was one that was, you know, Infamous people used to apparently go around and shoot with a shotgun and shoot the corporation's feed augers out and so forth. And I expected to find um, um, 
just very strong um, pockets of critique and resistance. And, you know, there was some of that, sure. And there were different forms of resistance. I'm not trying to, reading that quote in isolation can make me sound a bit defeatist or something like that. But um, at the same time, we have to recognize that these operations are not new, right? Um, this place has, this, this operation has been going for something like 30 years. Um, some communities, um, very large scale, vertically integrated industrial animal production sites have been going on for, um, have, been, have, have been running for 40, 50 years. Um, and it can be very challenging over generations to maintain that kind of resistance and things become, um, I hesitate to say normalized, but they nonetheless, um, that different kinds of politics and struggles um, emerge, emerge through it. And so rather than um, encountering um, scenes, everyday scenes of, of neighborly unrest and, and people at their throats kind of strife, um, instead, I, I wanted to just start thinking and engaging with different kinds of labor politics, different ways that people had um, found a way to try to make um, a, a life, a decent life in these communities and um, work within it. But on the other hand, um, you know, these are massive infrastructure projects. You know, when I'm talking about a factory farm, I'm not just talking about pigs in a barn. Right. I'm not just in, it, tucked away in the side of some cornfield or something. I'm talking about a massive um, logistical um, operation, one that arches from boar studs for the extraction of semen to very labor intensive artificial insemination barns and deliveries, deli uh, piglet delivery barns or farrowing barns to thousands of different barns arched across a 100 mile radius region into, you know, a massive slaughterhouse. Um, and and um, across a vast process of of post kill processing and so called value added processing of the animal's body, um, whether it is um, smell or the need for labor and constant new pools of labor moving through here. This is these are companies that employ five thousand people. Um, in a town of, you know, 15,000, um, it can have the effect of absolutely of kind of um, dominating life. I mean, this, I mean, this is a, a, a company town built in and through pigs. We are speaking with award-winning anthropologist Alex Blanchett, author of Porkopolis, American Animality, Standardized Life, and The Factory Farm. You mentioned how the town of Dixon, their kind of unofficial motto is that without the millions of hogs to sustain our livelihoods, everything would disappear. And you're right, this would not be a popular thing to say in this conservative place, but it should be underlined. What the local motto elides is the way Dixon contains the husks of other ghost towns. That is, other towns that were left uh, empty because of Rust Belt decay and the end of manufacturing in the Midwest. Its agribusiness first managed to run at capacity. That is, they were able to find enough willing people to populate working shifts only after the American recession of 2008 decimated working class communities on the coast. More fundamentally, places such as Dixon are enabled by agricultural policies that prioritize, as you were saying, cheap meat to subsidize the meager wages of post-Fordist urban service jobs, and that in turn have led to the bankruptcy of thousands 
of farmers across the country. Are these plants then bad for the American worker who does not work at these plants as well as being bad for the American family farmer? Does the presence of this kind of pork industry keep worker wages down and make generations old family farms unsustainable? Because I'm wondering how, well, are the outcomes of all the actions of pork processing facilities like the one in Dixon in opposition to the politics of the people who actually live in Dixon and work at the plant, whether they recognize that or not? Are they all complicit in politics that they wouldn't support? Um, ah, that's a tough question. Um, it's a tough question for me, especially because, you know, I lived in this community for a long time. I like this community. Um, um, you know, when people say if it wasn't for the hogs, this place would be a ghost town. We also have to consider like what that what that says about um, the rural United States. I mean, this is a community, as I I note, that um, was underwent some waves of deindustrialization in the 1980s, just like so many other rural communities across the United States. And it, you know, in, at a time when it was bleeding population, um, whereby it was coming to look like it was going to be a ghost town, um, just like so many other ghost towns that you drive past. Um, if you if you if you if you go through the Great Plains or the Midwest, um, and they sent out uh, a, a, a recruit a business recruiter to try to look for um, say dairies and so forth that might be able to replace a declining manufacturing base, and they're really left with three options as it was recounted to me: private prisons, a nuclear waste facility, or um, perhaps uh, at that time one of the largest and most integrated pork production facilities. Um, they went with the most more familiar agricultural option um, and in some senses would argue that the town is itself thriving, um, that it is a radically, interestingly cosmopolitan place, a town of 15,000 where there's some 26 languages spoken in the elementary school, um, a town that despite being a fairly conservative town to some degree has embraced this. Um, but on the other hand, I, I do think it is uh, important to think about what these operations represent, which is um, what I I'll later in the book call um, kind of totalizing or an attempt to realize totality. That's to say these companies want to, um, the companies at which they operate, or the scale at which they operate is one where they try to kind of monopolize um, the pig. They um, try to produce the pig in massive scales. They try to find value and kind of hold in within the company all value that are all known value or money within products, commodities within the, the porcine species. And they're trying to create a really, really uniform hog, which we can talk about in a minute, um, that also necessitates a great deal of discipline over workers' lives and um, and the 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 everyday encounters and feeds and experiences and environments of pigs. Um, so yeah, I, I, as, as, as I, I do think it's important to underline the ways that with increased farm consolidation with um, 70, if I'm not mistaken, off the top of my head, 70% of, of um, family owned hog farms going out of business um, in the 30 years leading up to 2013, that we also have to understand these to be, these these projects to be about um, 
monopolizing or or just deeply deeply concentrating um, bases for ex- exist a rural existence elsewhere. So you mentioned the standardized pig. What's wrong with having one standardized pig? Isn't it the best pig, the best hog, or at least the one that is best for humanity because the market has determined it is? Because you were talking about how there was a variety of pigs when you go back to Cincinnati prior to the Chicago Union stockyards. There were a large variety of pigs before this kind of industrialized stockyard was taking place. So what's wrong with having one standardized pig? What happens when that biodiversity within hogs is eliminated? Well, but a lot of things. Um, let's let's back up for a second and, and talk about this 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 figure of of the standardized pig. I mentioned before that the the company that I'm I, I was I was studying the various companies that are studying. We're trying to produce uh, what they'd say is a more quality animal, um, by which quality they really mean decreases in process variation, a more uniform and a more standardized hog. And it's actually kind of an interesting or paradoxical way of thinking about this. What they're really trying to do, as odd as it sounds, is try to create history's most uniform pig. Um, and there's good reasons for why there's sound, you know, logic, capitalist, realist reasons why they would want to do so. Um, First of all, having um, more uniform pigs allows you to get higher prices in global wholesale markets, especially for um, companies that want to build their own brands. They want to have a very uniform like pork belly for bacon and so forth. Um, That also allows you to export pork to more and more countries. And really for a lot of pork corporations today, um, profitability hinges on exports, especially trying to move as much pork as possible to places like Japan and South Korea, where they'll pay much more for animal flesh than um, people do in the United States. Um, having a really uniform animal also allows you to have a kind of consistent biochemical basis, as it were, for deriving 1,000 products out of, out of hogs. And finally, it allows you to um, speed up the pace of production, the pace of work on slaughterhouses, right? Thinking how um, even with a very uniform animal, um, it still remains challenging to certainly fully automate a meatpacking plant. Um, but what this increased automation or this increased standardization of the animal does is create um, a more uniform and predictable animal moving through production lines such that you have a 285-pound pig with a relatively um, regular um, distribution of tendons and muscles and fat and so forth, which allows companies to speed up the the pace of killing, Um, which if if we want to start thinking about why is this also problematic from another perspective, um, we can also say the pig's body is being shaped to increase rates of exploitation within a slaughterhouse that is already kind of working arguably at the limits of the human body. Um, but one thing else, so, but in a, in a broader sense, we have to think about what this, this effort, this focus on standardization and uniformity tells us about the kind of state of, of animal production in the U.S. So I think one of the things that's constant, like, been one of the most important shifts since the 1980s that Porkopolis really centers into is the rise of vertical integration. So obviously we know from Chicago that um, industrial slaughterhouses are a very old thing. And even indoor confinement, which is oftentimes taken as the kind of figure of 
animal industrialization um, is pretty old. I mean, it's from the 1960s or so. But what's relatively newer is vertical integration, which would kind of characterize, um, you know, 96% of the pork industry and 99% of the chicken industry today, which is really just one company owning um, pigs from pre-life to post-death, from genetics to, um, you know, hundreds of different products. Um, and one of the things that my book tries to make clear is that this effort to own every single phase of the pig's life and death also creates the conditions of possibility for companies to start trying to change the pig itself. So the project is not just a matter of, of the, 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 the capitalist project here is not just a matter of trying to derive revenue out of every single phase of the pig's existence and, and later death, but it's also one of trying to create a different kind of pig once um, one company controls it and dictates its conditions across every phase of its existence, right? That one, once one company can um, dictate every single thing that animal consumes, every single environment it's in, and every kind of um, labor process that unfolds around it. And, um, and one and one thing that I'll say with this project of an endingly um, trying to achieve more uniform life, right? It's, it's a complicated um, point that the book tries to work through, but these companies aren't um, simply trying to. We're, we're, they don't believe they can make a perfectly uniform animal, right? That's not really possible. Instead, what they want is to be have an animal that is more uniform than any others, so that they can charge a premium. Um, in some senses, they're kind of paradoxically trying to work through and find new forms of value by trying to um, um, overcome the very cheap meat that um, prior rounds of industrialization has wrought. But standardized life or creating more and more uniform animals at time create, requires tons of different forms of labor. And, and, and it's not just a project of locking pigs in barns, but instead it's a project of trying to find ways to kind of open up the animal um, at a very fine-grained, deep physiology, physiological level or biological level across its existence um, in ever more minute ways. You write that the process we have labeled deindustrialization in the global north since the 1970s it is worth underlining, has not resulted in a situation in which the material world, from the objects that compose our everyday lived environments to the planet's climate patterns, is less conditioned by industrial processes. It has meant fewer jobs, and practice deindustrialization marks the social abandonment and ostracizing of manual laborers, the devaluation of their existence amid factory closures, along with intensified exploitation of the few remaining manual laborers employed in factories in the United States and elsewhere. You say that this would be better described as something like hyper-industrialization. Fewer people, places, and species now bear the unacknowledged weight of making the world's material artifacts. It means select people live through unprecedented intensities of work. We err when we think that industrialism is a fixed and prior epoch receding in the rearview mirror. Outmoded by new forms and strategies of capitalist accumulation, it is instead a process that continues to unfold in novel ways. So why is it called deindustrialization? I mean, you, at the end of your book, you actually hope for deindustrialization. Why is our era called deindustrialization and not 
hyper-industrialization. Why do we still call it deindustrialization if there's more industry producing more products and burning more fossil fuels and contributing to climate change more than ever? Why call this massive expansion of industrialization deindustrialization? And do you think that has an impact on the way we actually perceive the state of industrialization as it actually exists today? Yeah, I mean, I, I, I think I think it does. Um, you know, I like I, I grant the point. Why do we call it that? I'm 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 I'm, I'm twisting around what the term deindustrialization has tended to mean, which is um, a lack of industrial work, right? A lack of of in, in important ways of being able to. Um, um, build a stable income and a family through industrial labor. And indeed, there are many fewer industrial jobs. But then I sit around and I say, but every single object that surrounds me emerges from an industrial locale, um, that the climate itself is being arguably industrialized. And so sitting, working for in this one pocket of the United States, in a, in a, in a, in a country that's otherwise framed and theorized and discussed as post-industrial, and sitting in this town that is just becoming unendingly more industrial over time, um, whereby the industrial is not some kind of epoch receding in the mirror. It's not a Fordist epoch, but instead is a logic that continues to unfold as companies search for more and more and more value. Um, and I think it's important for us to, you know, I, I, I think one of the risks of just sort of saying deindustrialization is is the loss of, of of jobs and so forth is we might come to believe that the world will be deindustrialized on its own right that capital will eventually just work and work and work towards the deindustrialization of the world as it searches searches for other forms of of value but um, by the end of the book um, I try to make a case for why we have to try to start imagining perhaps a more positive politics of deindustrialization. Um, one that doesn't mean the ostracization of manual workers, of precarity, but actually uh, actively work, works through and attempts to find value in, in, in a world that is less built around um, rapid fire, just in time efficiency, that is ret less built around um, not, in, in my case, wasting um, any, any, any piece of the pig. There's not um, one that every single moment um, and, and time uh, every single moment of our existence is designed to be dedicated dedicated around being productive people and productive workers. One last question for you, Alex. We have been speaking with anthrop- anthropologist Alex Blanchett, author of Porkopolis, American Animality, Standardized Life and the Factory Farm. Our final question, as you have heard our show in the past, apparently, by listening to our interview with the author of Red Meat Republic, uh, is, uh, our final question for each and every one of our guests is the question from hell, the question we might hate to ask, you might hate to answer, our audience is going to hate your response. And I think that's the category that this one will fall into, because I think the question that everybody is asking right now when it comes to any kind of meat supply is how stable is our meat supply chain? Yesterday, Reuters reported U.S. President Donald Trump ordered meat processing plants to stay open to protect the nation's food supply, even as workers got sick and died. Yet the plants have increasingly been exporting to China while U.S. consumers face shortages. So what does it say to you about industrial capitalism, even during times of shortages domestically and being ordered by the president to stay open to produce meat for consumption within the United States and the pork industry is shipping instead to whoever the highest bidder is and the highest bidder currently is China. So is capitalism patriotic? (laughs) No. Um, 
And so there's a lot of there's a lot of things there, and and this is this is the the, the situation is just wrenching. Um, so first of all, let me just say categorically, I don't think meat is essential. Um, 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 it's it's it's. <laughs> It's certainly um, not worth the um, the economic and racial violence that's 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 being put forward on 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 workers by um, mandating um, slaughterhouses to remain open and insulating work uh, companies from um, liability in the case of sickening or even um, killing workers. I think there's an open question as to whether this is about meat, right? Whether this is about meat in the first place. The United States has long overproduced meat. It has produced way more um, um, meat than the domestic population can handle. Um, something that is important to underline is that the reindustrialization of meat industries that we saw in the 70s, 80s, and 90s were not about meeting increased demand. Right? If anything, when we talk about 70% of farms going out, they completely outstripped demand and became, it became dependent on building their profit margins through exports and, as we've discussed before, all of these hundreds of other products. The figure I heard today is that right now 100% of plants in the U.S. are open and running and they're at 71% 71 capacity. Um, but I don't have the exact figure. But if this project was really about securing the so-called necessity of meat for American eaters, um, we they would not need to be running at more than, say, I'm, I'm pulling this figure out, but something like 50% capacity, right? Um, so I, I, I'm finding myself just questioning, is this really about main, about? feeding people? Is it really about meat? Is it really about a demand for meat? I think some a politician said there'll be civil unrest if there's not meat. Um, or is it about maintaining an American um, system of an American system of dominant control and, and engineering of an animal? Is it about maintaining kind of Tyson Foods quasi-monopoly or oligopoly with some other corporations control, um, disproportionate control of the global chicken supply, um, so so I don't I don't know, um, but all what I'll say is this: one of the points the book tries to make is that we should view factory farms as built uh, in their contemporary state is very totalizing and very fragile, and in fact, totalizing because they're fragile and fragile because they're totalizing. Right? There, these efforts to try to make try to find value in every single microgram of the pig to work at enormous scales of animals is itself a sign and symptom of, of, of an industry that runs on such low profit margins that needs to constantly derive new and new value and find really, turn the pig really into a terrain for the exploitation of labor. Um, that, that very drive towards controlling every microgram of the animal is itself a symptom of this system's fragility, but also um, that they are fragile because they're so totalizing that they have to have so many different forces and and labor processes and so forth coursing through pigs and so many different people coursing, uh, consuming pigs to maintain um, this project. And one of the things I say at the end of the book, which um, 
kind of hit me with a, like a brick in the wake of this presidential declaration was that, you know, I've actually encountered startlingly few um, people that think that factory farms are a admitted good, good thing, right? Including within some companies, um, you know, they're in many ways a, a punching bag, you know, no one, well, very few people will come out and say they support factory farms. Um, but yet I remain surprised whether it's in universities, um, in, in state governments, um, and so forth of how much, um, support is given to them and and how much work is actually expended to keep them in the world um and in many ways this was um to me just a striking moment of this here we have this system that is so built up that it hits this this bottleneck um with in a tightly packed refrigerated warehouses with 3000 people um that it seemingly can't operate um, I guess we'll, we'll see, but it's seeming with, with new measures being put in, but it seemingly can't operate without sickening people that the move is not to shut it down, um, which would have all sorts of effects, which not be a minor thing. It would have effects on farmers, um, um, food establishments, various supply chains. But, the, but nonetheless, it's, it was not to shut it down or create a pause or at least say, look, um, we can go a few weeks or whatever without meat, but instead it required um, a presidential um, declaration to keep open. And um, I, I think there's something profound um, lost in that. If anything, um, I, your listeners may have different takes and orientations and to the essentiality of meat, but um, I at least consider it... Um, obvious and necessary that we at least need to dramatically decrease meat production, um, whether we're talking about the amount of planetary land and resources that meat takes up, whether we're talking about greenhouse gas emissions, um, or um, whether we're talking about um, the probable role of um, industrial animal production in the rise of pandemics itself themselves. It's clear that we need to reduce some form of meat consumption. And I thought it was just a striking portrait of our society that in the face of highly exploited workers um, probably being sickened, um, that it was seemingly impossible to even imagine the declaration of a two-week, four-week, whatever-week, even hiatus in, in the system. Alex, I cannot thank you enough for being on the show this week. That is an, a, really a great book, Porkopolis, An American Animality, Standardized Life, and the Factory Farm. And as is the case with all of our guests, even a 40, 45-minute interview cannot get to everything that this book entails. You should definitely, especially in this time, check out Alex's book, Porkopolis. We have been speaking with award-winning anthropologist Alex Blanchett. Thank you so much for being on our show this week. Thank you. Money is the root of all evil, and capitalism is all about money, so you do the math. This is hell. This week's question from hell is, what vice presidential pick is getting you 100% on this Joe Biden train wreck of a presidential campaign? What vice presidential pick is getting you 100% on this Biden train wreck? The person with our favorite answer, 
to this week's question from hell wins 10 this is hell advertising stickers so you too can subvert outdoor advertising with the words this is hell you can leave your answer to this week's question from hell at our facebook page you can tweet it to us at this is hell radio you can email it to chuck at this is or alex at this is we just need your answers here by thursday because at the end of thursday's show after the moment of truth we will be reading all of your answers and announcing this week's winner uh, Alex will have more, or will have some of your answers to this week's question from Mel at the beginning of tomorrow's show. Alex, who is on tomorrow's show? Uh, real excited for this one. Layla Khalili will be on to talk about her book, Sinews of War and Trade, Shipping and Capitalism in the Arabian Peninsula. Tune in to tomorrow's show, streaming live 10 a.m. Chicago time at thisishell.com, or listen to the podcast posted shortly after, at least by 2 p.m. Chicago time, to hear your answers to this week's question from hell. I'm your bitter, blind, broke, gap-tooth radio show podcast live stream host, Chuck Mertz. Producing this week's show, Alex Jerry. Thanks to Alex's Jerry and Blanchette for being on today's show. Your eyewitness to grief. This is hell. Thank you for listening to This Is Hell. For more interview hell and to support the show, visit thisishell.com. <laughs>